Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney and Eric, with 30 out of 32 possible rounds being completed or at least started on Saturday night, it was another late night of boxing. Um, And I must confess, I completely overslept on Sunday as a consequence at 10 a.m. On Sunday, I woke up 10 a.m. The day was half over. So um, I I imagine as you had to drive home from Atlantic City, I can only imagine what time A, you got home and B, got to bed and C, woke up this morning. Are you actually even awake now? Is this all a dream? (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Let let me pinch myself. That's that's the standard technique for determining if something (laughs) is a dream, right? Um, Right, right, right. I felt the pinch, so so this so ah. I guess this is real, and I'm awake. Uh, but I, I am a bit foggy, uh, no doubt. I exited Boardwalk Hall around 1 a.m. after uh, squeezing in quick and enjoyable chats with our friends Al Bernstein, Mauro Ronaldo, Raul Marquez. So that was about 1 a.m. I got out of the Caesars parking structure, which had exactly one toll booth exit lane on a Saturday night oh. uh, at about 1:30 a.m. Uh, and uh, I got home. Just a few minutes after three, was asleep by about 3.30, and by my standards, I really slept in. Uh, I got a solid five and a half hours, woke up around nine, Mm. and I I actually woke up a little worried that, yeah, I I better check in with Kieran, uh, confirm recording timing, let him know I'm alive and awake and on track since he's probably been up a while and is ready to rock and roll, and then it turns out you're still asleep. Uh, (laughs) I don't know how I got home after 3 a.m. and failed to outsleep in you, but alas, I did. Well, I mean, it was my turn to, to come up with the post-bite notes for the podcast. True. So obviously that was draining. <laughs> I believe I saw that come through on my phone while I was sitting still, in the exit still. line at the parking garage. So it takes a long time to come down from that. Right. You know, Fair. Right. You know, yeah. a lot of adrenaline. I did write a post-fight report for Probox. Oh, okay. All so, right. you know, so there's that. And, right. um, you know, and then Alfie and I had to talk about it the night. Right, Obviously. right. Alfie had thoughts on the fight, surely. He, he had, he definitely had thoughts. Uh, not enough cat. Was his, was his basic. <laughs> That's summary. his main note. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Okay. And, uh, so yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it was a, it was a very, very busy night here. I guess so, but uh, whatever. I don't know. To sleep till ten a.m. on a Sunday, you're like a teenager, Kieran. Oh, oh, oh that's actually a le- another legitimate excuse, right? <laughs> it's this is going on way longer than I thought it would, but there is actually a legitimate excuse, Okay. which is uh, that my friend Sarah Jean is presently um, uh, house and dog sitting for a friend, mm-hmm. and one of the dogs is a seven-month-old puppy mm. who wakes up very early, and I have a fancy espresso machine, and the dog, the puppy woke her up at like five, and she's like, before I take this puppy out for a walk, I got to go get an espresso. So she came by at like 5 a.m. Mm. And, was, and was like, oh, don't mean to wake you up, she said, as she woke me up. <laughs> right. But I didn't want you to think I, somebody was, was robbing your house, and uh-huh. I'm just getting an espresso, and then I'm leaving. So that's what it was. There you go. That's three hours extra sleep right there. <laughs> all right. Th- it, this all does add up to a reasonably valid collection of reasons for you to have slept later than me today, I guess. 
can't believe we had that discussion for so long. Now everybody knows exactly how long I slept on Saturday mm-hmm. night. And everybody knows if they want an espresso in Vermont, stop by Kieran's <laughs> house at any time. Precisely. Anytime. I don't care. Right. All right. Uh, coming up on the podcast, we will look ahead to this weekend's Showtime Championship Boxing Triple Header, featuring future Hall of Famer Nonito Donaire, and headlined by rising young talent Frank Martin. Uh, we will be joined by Martin's trainer, Derek James, who is also the trainer of several other reasonably well-known <laughs> boxers. Um, we will have plenty to discuss with him including, of course, Charlo Canelo and Crawford Spence. We will address the week's news, including the latest updates on Virgil Ortiz Jr. Plus, of course, the fight game and Eric's response to last week's top five challenge. But first, to Atlantic City, where on Saturday night, Jerron boots Ennis was back to his blistering best, battering an almost two game for his own good woman via finally dropping and stopping him in the 10th round. Uh, Ennis improves to 31-0 with 28 knockouts. Bia falls to 26 and 2 with 24 stoppages. Eric, as we've discussed, you were there. So the floor is yours. Tell us what it was like ringside in AC and what you liked, and if anything, didn't like from Ennis. So I'll start with that ringside perspective and the, the atmosphere and all that stuff you may or may not have gotten on TV. It felt to me like I was watching a star. Um, not not mm. a superstar yet, certainly, but a, a legit star on the local level who has the potential to be a major superstar. It was loud and rowdy and packed at Boardwalk Hall. Now, it was the smaller room, the ballroom, which holds only about 3,200 or so, but it was sold out and then some, uh, a lot of standing room, and they mostly arrived early. These were real boxing fans. Mm. The the place was already half full by the second off-TV undercard bout, and... It seemed to me like about 90% of the crowd was there specifically for Boots. Uh, they were into it. The whole crowd rose to its feet every time Boots hurt Via, um, which meant the media section had to rise to its feet to see because we were behind about 10 rows of fans because that's the way things are these days. Um, but anyway, uh, atmosphere, A+. Plus. Uh, Boots has arrived as a big deal in the, in the Philly, Atlantic City area. Um, and I like the Undertaker ring entrance music that he started with. Um, <laughs> certainly better than the Celine Dion sounding ballad crap yeah. that he entered to. Um, as for the fight, this was exactly what Boots needed. He, he needed an opponent good enough to trouble him and, and to land hard punches on him and tough enough to force Boots to keep working and make adjustments. Via was everything we wanted him to be. And easily the best and toughest opponent Boots has faced Mm. through 31 fights. It wasn't a close fight, but it was a competitive fight. Um, I mean, I only gave Via one round, the fifth, but that's one more round than I've ever given any opponent of Boots Ennis before. Uh, You know, that that little never lost a round stat that Steve Farhood always includes, it doesn't apply anymore. Two judges gave Via one round, and and one judge, in fact, gave him two rounds. Um, But, my God, Via is a bad mother he he wouldn't (laughs) stop coming he seemed on the verge of going down in round six in round seven in round eight uh i talked to raul afterwards he really thought via's corner should have stopped it by about the seventh Mm. or eighth but it worked out better for boots to to give the crowd a real knockdown and knockout in the 10th um impressive things about boots uh the jab the seamless stance switching i think Mm. he's better uh, as a southpaw, or at least better offensively as a southpaw. Um, 
the 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 sick little display of slipping and blocking at the end of the fourth yeah. round that was almost sweet pea esque. Uh, the footwork, the ability to even fight effectively at times while moving backward. There's really nothing I didn't like in Ennis's performance, and I know some may say he got hit too much, you know, and pull out the old, you know, what happens if Errol Spence right. lands those same punches, that sort of thing. But, you know, you fight world-class guys, you're going to get hit a little. It makes sense to stand and trade in a few spots, let the other guy know what you have. He took some punches, but, you know, not too many, not enough to really get hurt at any point that I could tell. So, I don't know, I, I find really nothing much to criticize here, and, um, and I'll close by saying... If you have a chance to see Boots Ennis fight in person, do it. I'm 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 yeah. very glad I made this trip. Uh, but let me get your perspective from watching on TV, Kieran. Uh, what did you think? Should this quell the naysayers who emerged after Boots was taken 12 rounds by Karen Chikadzian in his last outing? And uh, he said afterwards he wants the winner of Crawford and Spence. Is he ready for that? And will he get it? To answer the first question first, yes, it should absolutely should. Well, the naysayers, it won't necessarily because this is boxing and people are idiots. But mm -hmm. if you didn't see that fight and realize that Ennis is potentially something special, I don't know. Maybe you need to follow another sport. Um, <laughs> look, as we say all the time, and as we said, actually, last week when we were previewing this matchup, styles make fights. Except when you have the kind of style that Chikadzian deployed in the second half of their fight. And then it doesn't really make a fight so much as just a, a soporific uh, a display. Um mm -hmm. Could Ennis have done more in that last fight to break down Chikartian and stop him? Sure. And he knows that. But he still won every round on every scorecard. And one of the great things about him is his constant willingness to learn and to make improvements. I mean, even after this excellent performance, the first words out of his mouth were about what he could have done better. Right. Um, much to Jim Gray's evident surprise. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, his having to deal with somebody like he had to Chikadzian last time will work to his advantage when he has to make a title defense against some completely undeserving over elevated alphabet mandatory who just wants to last the distance. Cause we all have to deal with that one day. Right. Um, are there things to criticize about his performance on Saturday night? Um, but maybe if you look really hard, <laughs> right. um, not a lot, but yeah, like you said, sure. He got hit, but Hey, as Ray Mercer said to me and kind of started the other week, it's boxing. You're going to get hit. <laughs> right. Um, and as you noted, his defense by and large is very, very good. I mean, he slips a lot. He blocks a lot. So some catch and flush. But if you're standing in the pocket, like you said, trading with a puncher, occasionally you're going to get hit flush. And it didn't seem to bother him particularly. He took them all, was never hurt. And that's the price of being an exciting fighter. Look, there's so much to like about him. And, and you've really gone through it. Great footwork. He's compact. His punch selection is out of this world. Um, he has a great engine. He likes to fight, not box. Um, that defense is terrific. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to hear you say that. I actually made the note here, and this is going to be a star. Mm -hmm. But by the sounds of it, he already is. So, yeah, uh, as for right now, you know, you mentioned Spencer Crawford. I'd wager that he won't ever face Errol Spence. My guess is that win or lose against Crawford, I think Spence is moving up to 154 when he's done with Bud. Yeah. Um, Crawford, though, I think Bud will face him. Just based on what Bud has said to us, what he said to us at the Hall of Fame last year, what Bo Max said the other week. Right. Um, you know, Boots quasi joked with us. 
last week that he hoped there's a definitive winner on July 29th that rules out the need for a rematch so he can go straight to the winner. Um, I, and I, I was thinking about that some more last night. And, man, I was just thinking about how what a nightmare scenario for him right now would be if, if, if the first fight is close, there's a rematch that goes the other way, and they end up having a third fight, and, and yeah. Boots is left on the shelf all that time. It could happen. It could yeah. absolutely happen. And um, you feel... And on the one hand, that's great for us because it means that the top two guys in the division are just facing each other, and that's fantastic. But puts Boots in a really, really tough position because he is the heir apparent right now. Is he ready for that fight if it comes along? Maybe he could do with them having a rematch and just getting that little bit extra. I think he's close to even money against Spence now. Mm-hmm. Crawford's a different matter. Um, still close, but... I was thinking about that as I watched this last night. Can you imagine Crawford against Boots right now? I mean, two switch hitters, both capable of boxing, but always happy to make a fight out of it. Um, Both really good defense, but both can get tagged. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God, what a fight that would be. I mean, I almost, with all due respect to our friend uh, Derek James and to Errol Spence, it almost makes me want Bud to win so that we could, on July 29th, so that we could see that fight with Boots, because I think, wow, what a clash that would be. And I think give him another fight or so and wouldn't necessarily make Boots the favorite because I think Bud is very good, but oh, it's a fight I'd want to see. I, I guess we could see that even if Crawford doesn't win. Again, there's the, the rematch yeah. and rubber match scenario to cons- be concerned about. But in theory, if Spence wins and moves up and Crawford doesn't move up, then Crawford and Boots, even Crawford coming yeah. off a loss, becomes the, the marquee match at 147. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but if we left the main event, uh, the main event wasn't as pretty. Uh, there was a lot of mauling and smothering and close quarters action, but there was a knockdown and an upset as Marquise Taylor moved to 15-1-2 and two by outworking and outpointing Yoel Viz Gomez. Uh, not all smothering is the same. Um, Gomez, for much of the contest, was smothering his own punches as he struggled to figure out what to do. Taylor's smothering was all intentional, and he used the extreme close quarters to work Gomez consistently to the body. Uh, Gomez rallied down the stretch, but it was too late. He drops to 6-1. and one. The score's going against him, 96-93, 96-93, and 99-90. Um, Eric, we said before that Gomez did not impress us with his last outing, a 10th round stoppage of Jorge Coda. We still picked him to win, although you did so with less certainty than me. Did we not trust our eyes enough, or did we just sleep on Taylor a little bit? As usual, with uh, with these sort of questions, I'm not going to go all first take and scream that it was one or the other. It was definitely, <laughs> definitely a bit of both, is the, the correct yeah. answer to that question. Uh, Taylor is a notch better than we realized, and indeed, Gomez not as good as he looked in his first five pro fights before he started fighting on Showtime, and... Maybe he's one of those boxers who's better suited to the amateurs than the pros. Um, mm. I, I half trusted my eyes in predicting a distance fight here, but I, I didn't trust them nearly enough. I actually had this a bit closer from my ringside vantage point. I had it in 95-94 Taylor with the knockdown in the second round being the difference, thanks to, as you said, Gomez rallying down the stretch. I, th- I thought he clearly won rounds 9 and 10 to make it appear close, uh, very close on my card. Uh, 96-93 scores, those are good. I don't get the 99-90. I thought there were actually three rounds that Gomez fairly clearly won and a couple more that were close. So I I don't see how you give Taylor nine of the ten rounds, but it's immaterial. The the right guy won. 
it's so interesting with Taylor. He's not a puncher. You know, one knockout in now 18 fights, you would assume he's a slick boxer based on that record. And certainly he does have some slickness, but he's also an infighter at heart. Uh, He likes to get in there and maneuver and wrestle a bit and not really use his length at all and, and fight like a guy who's capable of knocking you out even though he probably isn't capable of doing that. Um, Gomez complained afterward about the ref, but I thought Harvey Dock did a very good job mm-hmm. letting them great. usually fight it out. Um, Taylor had a, a, a great variety of punches, you know, body shots, as you mentioned, uh, the right hand that scored the knockdown, a nice chopping overhand left that you don't usually see from an orthodox fighter. And he had a sense of the moment. It seemed like... Mm-hmm. When Gomez would step up the aggression and, and try to take control of the fight, Taylor seemed to know when to rally and outwork him and, and prevent him from seizing control. Now, his technique was really unraveling in the final round, uh, yeah. but he got through it, deserved to win closely. And uh, Gomez, I saw people on social media saying Joe Goosen wasn't giving him the right advice. I have no idea. I couldn't hear what Joe was saying. Maybe you have had some insights on that. But yeah, in the end... It seems we should have trusted the Coda fight um, and mm. that, that Gomez seems to have found his level. And it's a level that's quite a bit lower than I believed a couple of fights yeah. ago. Uh, what did you think? Yeah, so we've seen in our last two fights more than 25 percent of Gomez's pro career. Right. Um, I think he's safe to say he's not very good, actually, yeah. in all honesty. Um, it's not that he doesn't have the ability to it. I mean, he had to be good. I mean, he had that great amateur career, but yeah, he, he has power, but he just doesn't seem to have the instincts about how to set it up. I actually thought Joe's advice was fine. You know, he's talking about finding that half step of space and 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 using the jab to set up its, his power. And Gomez either wouldn't or, or, or couldn't execute. Uh, mm. It feels like he's so in love with that power and maybe all the more so after that last gasp stoppage against Coda that he just figured he'd get the stoppage and everything would be fine. Um, I, I think he's going nowhere fast, actually, unless yeah. he allows Joe or another trainer to basically deconstruct his style and build him back up again. Um, as for Taylor, first of all, he seems a lovely fellow. Um, I really liked his, post, his post-fight interview. He just seems like a nice fellow. Uh, and second, I simultaneously uh, admire the fact that he knew exactly what he had to do and did what he needed to do to win the fight and respect his approach and his his knowledge of, of how to go about winning that fight. And yet at the same time, find myself in no great rush to see him fight again. And mm. um, it's, it's not pretty, but it sure is effective. Uh, he did know exactly what he was doing in there. It wasn't an accident. Uh, it didn't make for a great fight, but it didn't also make for a boring fight oddly it was it was oddly compelling even if it wasn't ever a particularly fun fight to watch he um he certainly he's certainly uh unique is marquise taylor right uh all right in the opener uh edwin de los santos surprised us all by electing to box instead of slugging it out against joseph adorno over 10 lightweight rounds nobody was more surprised than adorno who chugged forward probably looking to drag the dominican into a fight but but barely managed to lay a glove on him and frankly didn't throw nearly enough gloves at him. I gave Adorno one round, uh, as did one judge. Uh, we had it 99-91 for De Los Santos. The other two scored it 100-90. to Kieran, how surprised were you by how this unfolded? How impressed were you with De Los Santos? And 
what now for the once promising Adorno? Yeah, that was certainly not what I was expecting. Um, very good performance from De Los Santos. I, I thought a little bit about, um, do you remember Daniel Ponce de Leon? He was like mm-hmm. a pretty exciting bantamweight, super bantamweight um, from the early part of the century. Yeah. Um, fun fighter. Um, and I recall that at some pre-fight presser in Las Vegas, I, I forget which one, his trainer said something to the effect that, oh, Daniel's going to be boxing more and slugging less. And I was sitting next to Dan Raphael of ESPN. Yes. Um, and we looked at each other and we both went, no, <laughs> that's not what we want. Um, and if you had told me beforehand that Donald Santos would turn boxer, I might have had a similar reaction. But I thought this was about as much, about as fun to watch as a one-sided boxing clinic can be. Um, mm. It isn't just that Donald Santos boxed. I thought he was just very good at it. His footwork was excellent. His balance was good. His jab was on point. And he had real discipline throughout, which isn't always the case with boxers turned sluggers. It won't make for as many highlight reels as his Valenzuela fight, but make for a longer and more prosperous career if he has this in his locker. Um, and it shows that he and his team are capable of coming up with very different game plans for different opponents, which is a good sign. The onus was on Adorno to get him out of that groove. Um, and it, I don't know. Look, full credit to De Los Santos, but this became a bit of a sad outing for Adorno, yeah. I thought. He he came across to me a little bit as somebody who's suddenly starting to grow a smidge comfortable with being second best. Yes. Um, whereas De Los Santos showed us he can run through the gears depending on what's asked of him, Adorno was stuck in first and didn't look very interested in pressing the clutch and, and moving up through gears at, at all. Um, he just seemed to keep following him around willingly. He, he just didn't have the nous or the wherewithal, or the desire to try anything at all. And, and I understand it's easy for me to say that. I'm not in there. And I'm sure he, he prepared for an entirely different uh, opponent. And, and But you're supposed to always have a game, you know, a game this B or C, and right. he just didn't seem to have that. You hate to overstate the case on the back of one fight, but I don't know, I might need to go away and think about things a bit, because... I felt watching that fight, this is a man who's heading very rapidly for measuring stick status all of a sudden. Yeah, I, I have a lot of the same notes on, on Adorno as, as you do. Uh, I mean, as for the fight itself, it sounds like you enjoyed it a little more off TV than I did in person. I was uh, disappointed by how dull it was. We, we had mm. talked about whether it might be the show stealer. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, thankfully, Boots Ennis didn't require a show stealer. He would later steal his own show. But um, this, this was really disappointing to me. And there was a whole contingent of... Uh, People rooting for Adorno, I actually assume they were friends and maybe even gym mates of him who were standing right next to the press section, and they grew increasingly sad and frustrated as as this went on. They were boisterous at first and just getting quieter and quieter. Um, I guess credit to De Los Santos for boxing so effectively, but yeah, like you, for me, the bigger takeaway here was Adorno and the way he seems to have shifted mentally from... Mm-hmm a prospect fighting to make his name in this sport and become a champion someday to already a guy who started getting used to losing and, and just Mm. didn't have any digging deep in him on this night. Um, Seemed from my vantage point, like his corner was thinking of stopping it after the eighth round. Um, No, he was just, he was lethargic. It it was, it was a capitulation of sorts. And 
I wouldn't think Adorno is going to get invited back on Showtime after this. Just like you said, he he seems like a fighter who could really use a break. Um, yeah. Don't fight again this year. Just let your mind and body recover and then see how badly you want it after some time off. De Los Santos, he was sharp. I was impressed with his straight punches, with his speed, with how comfortable he looked boxing this way. And, you know, he could be a, a real tough out now that he's shown he can box or he can bomb. Um, it's not scaring off Keyshawn Davis, though. I saw him uh, call out De Los Santos on Twitter mm. afterward. Uh, that, that would be a pretty intriguing fight, I think. Yeah, indeed. Uh, so let's uh, update our picks competition off this card. It was tied 49-49 coming in. We each got one point for this fight, picking De Los Santos by knockout in varying rounds. We each got zero points for the Taylor Gomez fight. And our matching picks of NSKO8 were pretty close. We were in the ballpark. Uh, we each get two points for that. So it's 52 52. If this is a 12-round fight, uh, we just finished the sixth <laughs> round. Uh, it's, you know, 57-57 on all cards. Uh, anyone can win, except it's 52-52 on all cards. I, I guess there have been a lot of knockdowns to arrive <laughs> at that Apparently score. Apparently so, or some fouls. Some fouls, some you. knockdowns. You've yeah, had points fouling. deducted. You're constant fouling, yeah. <laughs> no, you're fouling, <laughs> cheater. Uh, all right, anyway, uh, that is one Showtime triple header reviewed. Now let's preview another. Uh, slow down, Steven Espinoza. Three three fights yeah, every right. weekend? Come on, it's a bit much. Stop working so hard. Uh, anyway. an espresso machine, clearly. <laughs> yes, he does not need to borrow yours, yeah. No. Um, so this Saturday, from the Cosmopolitan in Las Vegas, undefeated rising lightweight contender Frank Martin returns to the scene of his biggest victory so far by unanimous decision over Michelle Rivera seven months ago to take on fellow unbeaten Artem Hartunian. Martin is 17-0 with 12 KOs. Hartunian is 12-0 with 7 KOs. Kieran, what can you tell us about these two fighters? What's at stake for either man? And uh, what, my good man, is your pick? So what's at stake here for Frank Martin is the opportunity to once more showcase what appears to be some tremendous ability. And underline this case to be considered one of the fastest rising stars in the, in the division right now. Um, for Hartunian? an opportunity to crash the party and throw his name into the ring um truth is though it's a huge ask for hartunian um although he's only had 12 pro fights he's already 32 he had an extensive amateur career he didn't turn pro till he was 27 um he was a pretty good amateur too uh he won a bronze medal uh, light well away at the uh, 2016 olympics um he has a win as an amateur over batirak medov uh he was born in armenia his family fled the country in 1991 when he was one he's lived in germany since and that's where all his pro fights have taken place. Um, the thing is, none of them have been against anybody you've ever heard of. I will say, though, based on the video I've seen of him, he's not bad. Yeah. He's quite smooth. He's compact. He's a bob and weave kind of guy. A lot of upper body movement back and forth, a lot of sliding under punches. Um, he looks like he likes to fight in the pocket. He's got decent hand speed. He's got a very nice left hook. Um He'll give a good account of himself. I, I think he's a solid contender, actually. Uh, but Martin looks like he might have that little extra something-something. Um, he attacks from angles. He's got tremendous footwork, which he regards as his greatest strength. He's got fast hands. He hits hard. He pretty much overwhelmed Michelle Rivera, who might well be a little bit better than Hartunian. Um, I don't think Martin walks away with this by any means. I think Hartunian is actually pretty good, and I think he's going to make him work. Uh, I think this might be tight through the first half, but I think that gradually Martin's heavier hands and overall skill level will take their toll, and I don't think he'll have to go looking for Hartunian. 
Um, and I think as a consequence down the second half, I can see Hartunian going to be a little bit less mobile, easier to hit. And Martin in the very end rounds will really step it up a little bit. And I think that Frank Martin will end up scoring a TKO in the 11th. Okay. Uh, what an interesting division lightweight is. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm really eager to find out what Martin's place in that division ultimately yeah. is. Um, TBRB has him the number five contender to lineal champ Devin Haney. And it's almost all undefeated guys at the top, other than Lomachenko. It's it's all guys with zeros on their records. Haney, Tank, Shakur, Zapata, Martin. Um, by the way, Martin is uh, promoted by Errol Spence. Hashtag fun oh. fact uh, there. Uh, and fun fact on the other side, uh, Hartunian's trainer and his father-in-law is uh, Artur Gregorian, who held a belt in this very same division. Oh. I, I remember his career vaguely. Uh, his only loss was a decision to Asselino Freitas. Um, anyway, enough fun facts. Uh, I was really impressed with Martin last time out against Rivera, with the way he was splitting the guard with straight left hands, with his sharp, short punches, with the way he went to the body, how he controlled the pace. That, that counter left hand that dropped Rivera, that was a beauty. But, you know, Hartunian, like you said, he's good. He's he's mm. he's light on his feet, snappy jab. He's crafty, throws some sneaky punches. He has both a looping overhand right and a long right uppercut. And he can kind of disguise which one is coming and fire him off pretty quickly. And if, if you don't know which one's coming, it's easy to get hit with the wrong punch. Um, His good defense, I thought, from what I saw, good upper body movement. Um, I'm impressed with him. I think I would pick him to beat some of the lightweights in the top 10. Yep. Um, like, for example, I think his style would be a problem for Pitbull Cruz. I, I might pick mm. him over Cruz if they were going head to head. But yeah. I can't quite pick him over Martin. Um, but I, I think we're going to see a real high class boxing match. And I think it's going to be close. Uh, I'm telling you, for, for those who haven't seen Hartunian, this is no walkover yep. for Frank Martin. Yeah. But in the end, the way Martin kept getting stronger throughout the Rivera fight, the way he kept coming at the end, he does seem to have this extra gear between that and his southpaw style. I give him the edge, but it's not going to be easy. I'm going to take Martin by very close but unanimous decision. Mm. Um, and and by the way, if, if, if I'm wrong and this is lopsided, whether he gets the stoppage uh, that you're predicting or he ends up you know winning this fight running away, People shouldn't take it to mean that Hartunian is no good. Agreed. I, I think it would mean that Martin is even more legit than we realize. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, the co-main event sees the return of a very familiar name as a future Hall of Famer, Nonito Donaire, 42-7 and seven with 28 KOs, takes on Alexandro Santiago, 27-3-5, and five, uh, with 14 KOs at 118 pounds. Donaire's 5-4 and four in his last nine, but that's deceptive given that two of those defeats have been at the hands of Naoya Inoue, uh, one of them in the 2019 fight of the year. He hasn't lost to anyone not named Inoue since 2018. But Eric, the big number here is 40, which is uh, which will be Nonito's age when he steps into the ring. He continues to defy premature career obituaries, but at his age, farther time can catch up with you, well, at any time. Um, and will that time be on Saturday against the younger Santiago? Could be. Uh, I mean, honestly, Daenerys is such a mystery coming into this yeah. one. Yeah, hasn't fought in 13 months, is now 40, got obliterated in two rounds last time out, but it was against maybe the best pound-for-pound -pound fighter in the world right now. Two years ago, when, when Daenerys was knocking out Nordin Ubali and Raymar Caballo, he sure seemed to be putting up some 10-8 rounds against Father Time. Um, so... 
I don't know. Did he cross some age threshold before the Inoue rematch? Or mm. was that just Inoue Inoueing? Uh, boy, that's a tough, <laughs> uh, tough verb to make out of his name. Um, even if it was all due to Inoue being awesome, is a year of not fighting, getting older, plus those punches he mm. took from Inoue, is that going to take the last flickers of youth out of Donaire? I truly don't know. Uh, and mm-hmm. unless you've been in the gym with Nanito the last several weeks, you're, you're really just guessing on this one. What I can tell you is that he's not in easy here against Santiago. Um, like the main event where I just said, Hartunian's better than you realize if you've never seen him. Santiago is better than you realize if you just look at his record. Um, he started his career 12, two and three, most of that compiled as a teenager he then got better. He's only lost once in his last 18 fights, and that was a majority decision to Gary Antonio Russell on Showtime in 2021, and, and it was that close of a fight. He's a physically strong fighter. He's compact. Donaire's the longer guy. He'll probably want to box and keep this fight on the outside, but it won't be easy. I mean, if if he's the same guy who beat Gabayo and Dubali, then Donaire most likely wins in a competitive fight. But if I had to guess, I'd say he's not quite that same guy. Mm-hmm. So maybe he wins in a downright grueling fight, or maybe he struggles and falls behind, but lands that one big punch, which, look, the power usually is the last thing to go, and Donaire has always had that power. I kind of have a hunch, though, that Donaire's going to step in the ring Saturday and not quite have it anymore. Um, I hope mm-hmm. I'm wrong, but I'm going to predict that he's a step slow, that his 40-year show... And he can't quite find that big punch, and Santiago gets the better of him. Uh, but that we get one funky scorecard. I'm going to say Santiago by mm-hmm. split decision. Yeah, I have many of the same points here. Uh, in the Donaire is at an age where it's just it's just so difficult to make a confident pick because yeah. as good as he's been, you just never know when the wheels are going to fall off. Um, 118 pounds has been his best weight throughout his career. He's 11 and 4 at 122 and 126, and 31 and 3 at 115 and 18. Mm. And those three losses include two to Inouye and one in his second pro fight. Um, but he's 40, and Santiago is a pretty decent fighter who's on an 11 and 1 run. Um, it's the best Noni Tudener, better than the best Alexandra Santiago. Yeah. Clearly, I think. Um, but we're clearly not going to get the best Nonito Donaire. How good of a Donaire are we going to get? Um, if Donaire has an off night or shows a decline and Santiago's on form, then yes, this is this is a classic case of a younger guy getting his way to an upset victory here and, and possibly sending a future Hall of Famer into retirement. Um, I wandered up to the very edge of picking a very similar result to you and then i just step back from it a little bit i i can't quite ignore i i think the in a way rematch loss was in a way being in a way um we've seen him blast out other very good fighters and i can't quite ignore what i've seen from him lately donair and i do think that being back at 118 has given him just a little bit longer um I think you'll have just enough left in the tank to win this. But it's going to be awfully, awfully close and close enough. And he might get hurt enough that he decides that enough is enough here. 
uh, I went through all kinds of different scenarios, none of them with any confidence whatsoever because of the uncertainties about what's going to happen with Denair. I think it's going to be a, I'm, so I just threw a dart, a dartboard, metaphorically speaking, mm. to be honest with this. I see a fight that's very close through nine. Um, and then in the 10th round, Nanido just finds one last well of something. And even though Santiago has not been down in his career, I think he finds that one big punch to score the last gasp knockout um, in the 10th round. Uh, and uh, and then he might just think to himself, you know what? This is an extra, this is a belt. This mm-hmm. was tough. I'm done. I'm going out. So I'm going to pick Donaire KO 10. You you gave it the very uh, sort of storybook ending for Donaire, optimistic spin of we're seeing a similar fight, but but I have him losing sadly in a by split decision and you have him pulling out the dramatic KO and then walking away. Uh, yeah. He, so uh, I, I'm kind of rooting for your scenario, but maybe maybe not exactly. I don't want you getting like five points or anything. But, well, uh, indeed, indeed, exactly. It's, 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 a, it's a 12 rounder. You can do it in the 12th. Okay, fine. I, I could live with that. Yeah. Um, we have another veteran versus youngster matchup in the opening bout of the broadcast as longtime 140-pound contender and briefly titleist Viktor Postol of Ukraine, age 39, with a record of 31 and 4, 12 stoppages, takes on 27-year-old Elvis Rodriguez, who is 14-1 and 1, also with 12 stoppages. Uh, Rodriguez started his career 10-0 and 1 with 10 KOs. Then, after being taken the distance the first time, was outpointed by Kenneth Sims, prompting promoter top rank to cut him loose. He's since gone 3-0 and with his most recent outing, a majority decision win over Joseph Adorno in February. The highlight of Postol's career was his knockout of Lucas Matisse in October 2015. Since then, however, he's fought just seven times, going three and four, although his defeats have been to high-quality opposition in the form of Terrence Crawford, Josh Taylor, Jose Ramirez, and Gary Antoine Russell. Kieran, does Postol have what it takes to turn back the challenge of the younger Rodriguez, or will Rodriguez's post-Sims career rebound continue? Like the co-main, I find this a difficult pick, and for similar reasons. Um, Postol's age and the difficulty in pinning down how good Rodriguez is. Uh, After he lost to Sims, Rodriguez was fairly instantly dismissed as a hype job, um, which was only heightened by the fact that top rank cut him before the echoes of the final bell had had stopped ringing. But, um, you know, our boy Sims has proven himself to be a pretty legitimate contender since then. And... Rodriguez isn't as good, I think, as his initial string of knockouts made him appear. I don't know if I'm ready to give up on him yet. I don't know how high his ceiling is. Right. And if this were peak Postol, I would pick the Ukrainian. Um, but I wonder if Postol is slipping to a level where he's just good enough to lose close fights against top opponents and now maybe losing close fights to not quite top opponents. Um I don't know. All four of the fighters you mentioned who've beaten him are, I think, greatly superior to Rodriguez. But against that, Postol hasn't scored a win since 2019. He hasn't won against a legitimate opponent uh, since that impressive stoppage of Matisse. Um, The thing is, even when he was winning, Postol's style could sometimes appear diffident, as if he was kind of indifferent toward getting the win. And that hasn't improved. And I don't think that exactly covers favor with the judges. I think Postol's the better boxer. He's the more skilled, he's the more talented, but I question whether he has the application of the physicality to get over the line here. 
and I'm going to pick Rodriguez to emerge with a majority decision win that actually doesn't answer too many questions <laughs> about him at all. Okay. Um, so th- these two have sparred together a lot, and um, Elvis is at a point in his career where he's back on track enough, seems to have a bright enough future that, that you would think his people wouldn't have made this fight for him right now if he hadn't acquitted himself well in sparring with mm. Postal, generally gotten the better of Postal, whereas Postal... At 39, coming off losses, he's in less of a position to pick and choose. Um, he really did look to be fading and badly overmatched against Gary Antoine Russell last year, and and now he's been inactive a while. I find this maybe the easiest fight on the card to pick. Ah. Um, I, I'm still not totally sold on Rodriguez. I mean, he's talented, but I, I don't know that he's a future champ or anything. But I, I, I feel fairly confident he's getting post-all at the right time. Um, but I'm going to say some old sparring partner instincts kind of kick in and, and he doesn't get the knockout here. I will go with Elvis by decision as you did, but I'll say wide unanimous decision rather than a close majority decision. Okay. Uh, let's turn to the week's news. And uh, while we're actually pretty light in terms of the number of items to cover, just two making the cut this week, they're each worth exploring in some depth and um, fair warning here. They're each serious and frankly sad. Uh, so I guess fast forward five minutes if you don't like serious and sad. Uh, First, the big news of the week, as you undoubtedly know by now, Virgil Ortiz was forced to withdraw from his scheduled welterweight clash with Montes Stanionis for health reasons. The second time he's had to do so and the third time he's canceled a fight since 2020. Initial reports were that Ortiz fainted in camp, which sounds bad, but not necessarily dire. But Dan Rayfield reported that Ortiz's father had to give him mouth to mouth. So it clearly was quite dire. Uh, Ortiz's promoter, Oscar De La Hoya, has already said that Virgil will no longer try to make 147 pounds and will return at 154. But Kieran, is weight loss really the issue here? Or given Ortiz's well-publicized recent health struggles with long COVID and with rhabdo, is his entire future as a boxer in question, do you think? Yeah, I was surprised by Oscar saying that. And and there have been a couple of other folks I've seen in, in boxing sort of saying, well, he's just got to come back at 154. I'm sure that cutting weight is contributing to his issues, given the nature of, of what Rabdo is and that it kind of, you know, results in muscle breakdown and all of that. But I can't imagine that putting on seven pounds is going to be the panacea here. That might put his body through less physical stress the tail end of a camp but what's going to happen during a fight when the demands on his muscles are going to be even greater um look obviously i am not a doctor and speculating too much on this would be irresponsible of me but the fact that he has been diagnosed with rhabdo as a complication of long covid and the fact that this is now this his third occurrence of that i mean that suggests the underlying situation is more severe than something that could be solved by fighting at 154 instead of 147. I mean, the amount of stress a body goes through during an actual price fight is immense. Um, and what opponent wants to take that risk, right? Not only of something severe happening to Ortiz in a fight, but also the risk of ever even getting in a ring. Poor Abanza yeah. Stanionis has lost, what, a year of his career now. So, mm-hmm. like I said, I, I, sh- I don't want to speculate too much, but I can imagine that this is a good situation for his career. I do hope that everybody around him is focusing only on his health and future well-being and putting his boxing career as a very distant second place. I'm not attempting to get him in the ring first and think about his health second. Um, My second hope is that he's 
if he's able to have, I do hope that he is able to have the successful career that he so obviously wants and that his talent merits. But the main hope is that he's healthy, whether he's a professional boxer or not. I don't know him at all, but this has to be such a difficult and upsetting and scary time for him and his loved ones right now. Yeah. Um, as you flagged, the other item is also a sad one, as former middleweight contender Antoine Eccles has died at the age of just 51 as a result of complications from diabetes. Um, Eccles twice fought and lost to Bernard Hopkins, dropping a decision in 1999 and losing by TKO a year later. Uh, I seem to recall he actually cracked Bernard pretty hard in one of those fights and, and definitely had Bernard as hurt as he ever was, uh, at, certainly at that stage of his career. Um, Eccles finished with a record of 32 22 and 4 with 28 KOs. But that record is greatly skewed because he went 117 and 3 down the final stretch of his career. Um, Eric, I believe you covered some of Eccles' fights. What can you tell us about the man they called Kid Dynamite? This is so sad. Um, I, I hadn't thought of Antoine Eccles in years, which, you know, that's a, a sad thing about boxing and about life. Mm. If you're a good but not great fighter and you're not staying in the public eye, a guy like me kind of forgets about you until there's mm. terrible news like this. Um, but he, he was a very good fighter, a top contender at middleweight and super middleweight for a five-year stretch. Um, he first cracked the radar on Tuesday Night Fights in 1998. He was a relative unknown taking on Brian Barboza and was way behind, had maybe lost every round, and then suddenly knocked Barboza out of the ring and won by KO in the ninth round. He kept winning, got a shot at Hopkins, their first fight wasn't all that close, but as you said, Eccles uh, did land some big punches, may have hurt Hopkins a little bit, gave a decent accounting of himself, and, and the middleweight division was not deep at the time. So he got a rematch a year later, and that's the one Eccles fight I covered live. It was a hmm. Friday night HBO main event from Vegas on the eve of the big Trinidad Vargas pay-per-view the next night. And it goes down as one of Hopkins' greatest wins as he injured his shoulder early and stopped Eccles in oh, the 10th yeah. with one arm. Um, Eccles was a, a good fighter who maybe could have grabbed a belt against a different titleist, but was just a little in over his head against Bernard Hopkins. Um, then he had a remarkable fight on Showtime against Charles Brewer, an insane thriller. Uh, Brewer dropped Eccles three times in the second round. Eccles survived and dropped and stopped Brewer in the third. Uh, a bit of a premature stoppage under the circumstances, I think, but an amazing comeback, just the same. Then Eccles lost a decision in a title shot against Anthony Mundine in 2003, and by 05, he was done as a contender. And yeah, as you said, the, the final record is misleading because he fought on for a full decade as just a, a used-up guy getting knocked out. But he deserves to be remembered for the serious contender he was, for the always dangerous puncher he was. Of course, 51, far too young. Uh, Ugh, rest in peace, yeah. Antoine Eccles. Absolutely. All right, bit of a tonal shift here, but uh, Kieran, are you ready to lighten the mood and play the fight game? Well, after my struggles to sleep, apparently, on Saturday night. <laughs> here come the see. excuses. Here, here they, they go. Come. Oh, yeah. Every week. <laughs> every other week because every other uh, week yeah, you don't you have go. to play <laughs> there you go all right here we go first clue okay this was the first fight of one of the most entertaining three fight rivalries of the 2000s but it's a rivalry you may well not have thought about much in recent years in, in other words mm. they produced some great fights in the moment but those fights haven't totally stood the test of time 
Hmm. I haven't stood the test of time just simply because people have forgot about them rather than we look back at them now and they're not quite as good. Right. More, more, right. More, more the the latter there. In other words, this isn't Morales Barrera, like the kind of rivalry that obviously I wouldn't do the first fight of that because you already did the first fight of that. So it's an easy one (laughs) for me to give as an example of what it's not. But, you know, it's not that's a rivalry we still talk about all the time. This one is not. Hmm. Off the 2000s as well, you say. Yes. Well, I'm clearly among those who uh, has forgotten about that trilogy. So, <laughs> okay. good first clue, though. But, okay. Yes. All right. All right. But you're not ready to throw a guess out there. Nothing's coming to mind. So let me uh, let me go move on to clue two. I told you it was in this century. Now I'll basically tell you the exact year. This okay. fight was undoubtedly going to be the fight of the year, if not for Juan Manuel Marquez knocking out Manny Pacquiao that December. Huh. Okay. So the sub-question is here, here is, do you remember exactly which year Marquez Pacquiao like, 4 was? Is that 2013? 14? 13? You're, you're close. 12. 12, yeah. Okay. <laughs> it was. 2012? It, it was 12. 2012. Okay. Huh. Why am I not even thinking about it? And that, that was the first one. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I have to say also, nope. I'll, I'll, I'll note to fill the time that uh, that I was unsure if maybe this was a fight that you attended, um, and 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 if so, it would probably make it easier. The fact that it hasn't crossed your mind yet leads me to think maybe you were not at this fight, but I guess uh, we'll find out as we get closer. But anyway, it was the f- it was the first first of three, and it was in 2012, okay. and it would have been the fight of the year for sure. It was clearly going to be named fight okay. of the year until Marquez screwed screwed that up for these guys. Still not there quite yet. Okay. All right. Clue three. This fight was at the magical venue known at the time as the Home Depot Center, and it featured two undefeated 140-pounders. Okay. 140 pounds. Three fights. And this was the first one. Mm-hmm. And I and I will say, not not in your defense, not making excuses for you exactly, but my first clue about how people have maybe kind of forgotten about it, don't talk about it much. I'm not surprised it's not coming to you. I, I just want you to know that I okay. am. I I I'm making excuses for you here. That it's. Ooh, do we have a do we have an inhale that suggests you just thought of something? Was the first fight very good and they became maybe slightly less good as the trilogy went on? So that's kind of included in my next clue. It's sort of. Okay. I, I we'll can get, say we'll more, get a, we'll I get can say more specifically. Do, I mean, do you have a guess in mind that you were about to throw out there? Because it may be is right. Mike Alvarado mm-hmm. and Brandon Rios? It is. Yes. You got it without needing the fourth clue. It is the okay. first fight. 
between Brandon Rios and Mike Alvarado. So three clues. Well done. Not bad. I was I was not at the first one. I was at the second and the third one. Okay, that's what that's I wasn't what made sure. me think. That's what made me wonder because the second one was pretty good. Yeah, that's why I wasn't. I couldn't quite say that your your sort of question there was totally accurate because the second fight was almost as good as the first. So it wasn't. Yes. But then, but then, yes, big drop off between the second yes. and the third. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, oh, no, that's a good one. I had forgotten about it. Yeah, right. It's like one of those. So Brandon Rios was on my mind recently, uh, and and so that's what kind of that's what made me think of it. And then I was like, oh yeah, those were that was a great fight, and the rematch was that really first good one was too. Was a terrific fight. Yeah, it was really a terrific fight. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I had forgotten exactly what year it was. Right. I I feel like I saw the second one like when we we started at HBO was the second one like 2014 or something. I think, I think it, it might have been one of my 13. I think it was. The it was next 13. Year. Okay. Yeah. Oh, and the, the that's right. The rubber match was in Colorado, I think, and I was yeah. there for HBO. Yeah. Yes. And that was maybe like 15 or something. Yeah. Like that, that they had the third fight, but um. So yeah, the other the other clues were just going to be clue four was this tremendous brawl ended in a seventh round stoppage in the rematch. The fighter who lost this fight would even the score by close unanimous decision. The third fight of the trilogy was a forgettable KO three in which one fighter came in pretty much all used up. So you yeah. were you were definitely going to get it off that one, uh, but thank yeah. you got it before that one. And then of course clue five. In case these names were not crossing your mind, uh, this would bring them to the forefront. It was an even fight on two cards through six rounds, and then bam, bam, the fight was over, and the loser <laughs> was not feeling a mile high. Nice. <laughs> so, uh, yes, officially, Brandon Rios, KO7, Mike Alvarado, October 13th, 2012, and I was, I, when I thought of the fight, I was sort of thinking, huh, was, did that win fight of the year? I think it did, and then I looked it up, and oh, no, it was the same year as Marquez Pacquiao, and then I looked up the fight of the year articles from the time and the runners up and this was the number one runner up on every list it was basically this was gonna win until uh until marquez knocked out pacquiao that, funnily that almost surprises me i that because I, I, I mean i get it actually but i do recollect it being so highly like regarded it almost surprises i i understand why marquez pacquiao four would, would win out over it but it was such a terrific fight that almost surprises me that it wasn't fight of the year. Yeah, um, I mean, Marquez Pacquiao for... I, I get it. I consider that the fight of the decade, really. So, mm. yeah. Um, but yeah, if you t if you remove the quality of the fighters and the level of the yeah. event and you just look at the action, sure, you could make yeah. a case that Rios KO7 Alvarado was as good or better than Marquez KO6 Pacquiao. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Ah. There you go. God, I haven't even thought about either of those fighters for the longest time. Yeah, that was, it made it a little a little tricky. Even though it's a modern fight, they are guys who their careers ended and uh, and you just kind of haven't thought about them much uh, since then. But uh, you you did well there to get it in three. I'm impressed. It is, it is funny. Robert Garcia brought up Brandon Rios when I interviewed right. him the uh, the other week. And that was like the first time I'd heard of Brandon in a little while. So yep. there, there you go. All there right. you go. All right. Oh, that was a good one. I like that. I thought I was not getting anywhere at first. There. <laughs> you weren't. Uh, <laughs> you, you. It took you a while, but then when, but then once you got there, you got all the way there. So good job. <laughs> all right. Um, joining us now is quite possibly the hardest working man in boxing training. Um, he is the trainer. 
among many others, of Frank Martin, who we've just discussed and who we'll see on July 15th, Errol Spence, who will be facing Terence Crawford on July 29th, Anthony Joshua, who will be fighting Dillian White on August 12th, and Jamel Charlo, who we recently learned will be facing Canelo Alvarez on September 30th. He is, of course, Derek James. Derek, welcome back to the Showtime Boxing Podcast. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So uh, about a week or two ago, when we decided we wanted to reach out to you to ask you to come on the podcast again, there was no doubt at all about what our first few questions would be about. Obviously, they were going to be about Spence Crawford. Since then, however, has come the big announcement that Jermel will be facing Canelo in September, a matchup that pretty much nobody saw coming. So so our questions about Spence Crawford can wait a few minutes. Uh, right. Everyone assumed that Canelo would be fighting Jamal. Instead, it's your guy, Jermel. What can you right. tell us about how this went down? How quickly did everything fall into place? And, and frankly, how surprised were you? I think it, it took a while. It took maybe like a, say like a month or two, you know. Oh. Mentioned it was, it was, it took a while, but um, you know, we talked about it, and then I told him, you know, how I felt about the fight, and then they went forward with it because it was just a thought. So, his name was in the mix, even though we as the public were hearing Jamal, you knew that Jamel's name was, was right. in the mix the whole time, yeah, 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 it was, it was always Jamel. Hmm. Interesting. And, and, and I do just have to ask quickly, how, how is his hand? Is it, is it fully healed? Well, it's, it's just getting, it's getting there. It's getting there. My, my, um, it's getting there. He's okay. Okay. It wasn't, it's, it was in good enough condition that you, 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 uh, you weren't hesitant at all with the September 30th date. Oh yeah. Because it's like, you know, it's a ways away. I mean, he's good. He, you know, he fought and I mean, he's working out or whatever. So he's okay. He's good. Okay. So even though you guys knew it was Jamel, like I said, we were all assuming it was going to be Jamal and we're trying to trying to handicap that fight. Um, what do you think Jamel brings to the table that's different from his brother? How how what advantages does he have maybe over his brother that, that Jamal wouldn't have? I think that he's uh he's more athletic. I believe that he's more um he's a lot faster. You know, more mobile. So I think that that's that's really what may be the biggest factor in the fight is that athleticism, speed, and maybe his mobility. And, you know, some folks who want to kind of dump on it, of course, talk about the fact that, oh, you know, Jamel's fought at 154. But really, I assume that physically there's very little difference between them, right? If you're okay with Mal moving up from 160, you've got to be okay with Mel moving up, right? Yeah, it's not. It's only like a couple more pounds. It's not. It's not. It's not that serious. Where it's something that, I mean, it's it's you know average, right? So let's start with that. But then at the same time, it's like, um, you know, I think he can handle it. You know, we have pretty good defense. He's very, he's very fast. He's very elusive. So we'll see. All right. So so that's the big fight that that none of us were expecting, even if you know knew it was in the works. Uh, but two months before that we have the fight that everyone's been hoping for for a long time. Your guy, Errol Spence, against Terrence Crawford. The right. odds makers, uh, they initially had it, even money, but um, Crawford has crept up and become a small favorite. Errol now a small underdog. Are right. you surprised by that? And and is it a, a motivator of any kind for you and Errol? I mean, I think that it's funny because I think that, you know, um, 
I'm okay with the way they, they choose. I mean, you know, the odds makers or whatever. It doesn't bother me. I think that the whole fight as a, as a whole, regardless of what the odds say, is a motivator. Because, I mean, and even with them, I'm sure the whole time they've been people hearing people say, Errol Spencer beat you and we hear the same, you know. So I think that, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Because, I mean, I think this is a situation to where, you know, you've uh, it's been looming, and the idea of it is, is, is a great situation. It's like a Raider and a Hagler fight, and so that's what really—it's all about making history. It's all about um, just you know going out there and being your best and daring to be great. And really, to be honest, that's what it's all about. Um. So we asked this question of of Bomac about Crawford a couple of weeks ago. So I'll ask it of you and Errol as well. Um, like. Crawford, Errol is almost certainly a Hall of Famer if his career ends tomorrow. But win or lose, is this the fight for which he will be remembered, no matter what he's done before and no matter what he does afterwards? Well, I don't think about the L word, but... Um... Okay. <laughs> That's kind of what Bomag said, actually. <laughs> but I think that at the same time, I think that hey, you have to, you, you know, I don't think it will be that. It might be. I think that this is going to be a great fight, and depending upon how it goes, or how one-sided or how competitive the fight really is, as you you kind of see how it be graded throughout history. I mean, maybe they'll say, "Well, one fighter was a hype job, one fighter was this, one fighter was that," and so I think that this is the fight that makes a difference because uh, it's going to prove does does the athlete be the be the technical boxer. Does the fighter who has all athleticism be the guy who has great technique and a great skill set? So we'll see. It occurs to me as we're as we're talking about these two fights together um, that to ask you whether there's a difference between Errol with the mindset of a fight that he's been thinking about probably for years that you guys have been sort of thinking about this possibility of fighting Crawford versus with Jermel, a fight that you haven't spent that much time thinking about. Uh, the, the, is, is, it, is it very different in, in camp in terms of just like Errol having had this particular fight on his mind for so long as compared to the other situation? Yeah, it has to be different because I think that, one thing is something that, you know, you've always, and really not, like, maybe, like, what, the past three or four years or so, mm-hmm. been the idea of that arrow fighting uh, Crawford, and then, you know, take eight weeks, or, you know, <laughs> something like that, or seven, eight weeks or so, something totally different, because the arrows had the, had the ability to grasp it and hold on to it, and Jamil has to, like, kind of, like, uh, embrace it, and, uh, even though you won it, he's a big. He was. He's been a big fan of Canelo. I mean, mm-hmm. we never talked about. It, but I see him in the interviews talking about Canelo. What he thinks Canelo. I think good. He thinks he really is. So it's like he's been a fan of him. So now it's like, hey man, let's, let's go beat the guy that you're a fan of. It's okay. You still can love him. Right. So in between those those two massive fights, you'll be in England with Anthony Joshua for a rematch with Dillian White. Uh, it'll be your second fight with AJ. He took some criticism for his performance against Jermaine Franklin, but it was a clear win against a dangerous opponent who came to fight. How would you grade his performance, and what do you expect to see from him against White? Well, I think that 
the thing about it is, I mean, I don't know what the criticism was. I mean, he did what I asked him to do. So mm -hmm. if don't criticize him, criticize me. He fought the fight exactly where I wanted him to fight. I think at the end we could have picked it up a little bit and probably stopped Franklin. But I think that at the same time, hey, it, he fought he fought the fight that I wanted him to fight, and I asked him to fight. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I I don't really have an issue with it. And I really, you can't really care about people criticizing you. You know, I had a thought. I said, somebody can't criticize you about your accomplishments if they haven't accomplished what you have accomplished. So regardless of whatever, just keep it moving. Now, Dillian White's a, a tougher. And I don't know if he's tougher because I think Franklin really beat him. I possibly could have beat him in the first fight. But I think that in this one, Dillian White, it's coming, you know, he's a, he's, a, he's a tough guy. He's, a, he's kind of like a bully fighter. So he's going to come and try to bully AJ and try to, you know, kind of take him out of his game plan, I believe. Is that potentially good for AJ? Is that kind of what he needs right now, someone to come at him and and force him to, to, to really, you know, get aggressive in return? Well, I think that he, he gets aggressive when he needs to. I mean, mm -hmm. like, I, yeah. but... It's boxing. If you if you can make a, do you, we want to see knockouts? Yeah, we want to see knockouts, but it's it's a process. I mean, say say the second, the third, or fourth fight, he'll fully be embraced with what I teach, and then he'll go, you know, put it on people. But right now, he's just boxing them out. And really, with Dillian White, you never know he could get a knockout because he's a big puncher. He's a big puncher, right. so we'll see. Um, as we mentioned, in addition to those three big names, you've recently took on Brian Garcia. You've got Frank Martin, as we mentioned. When you have so many high-quality fighters around the gym all at once, do they kind of drive each other on to excel? Like, do you see a find like AJ catches Errol putting a really good sparring session, and he's like, "Damn, I gotta, I gotta do put it on today." Well, I think that. For me, I think it's more inspirational to have it, you know, your stable mate there with you watching you work. And then I think that at the same time, it's like, yeah, because Errol is like the guy's been with me for 15 years, 16 years. So everybody's kind of watching him, watch how hard he works. And then motivates and inspires him. I mean, AJ's like, I got to pick it up. Like, man, you're heavyweight. You know, but, but the fact that he believes he has to pick it up is great. And I think that Ryan, Ryan hasn't, been in the gym with him yet because he trains later in the day. But he was there with Frank Martin today. So, I mean, you know, and they kind of, they really met for the first time. It was cool. I mean, and I think, uh, you know, it's a good thing. I, mean, I think it, when you when you have an environment where there are all great fighters around, right, and there has to be some humility, there has to be somebody, you know, I, I, they have to be very humble because, you know, and everybody can't, some guys are too insecure to walk into a room like that. But other stars, the boxing stars are. And the level of insecurity is so high that it could be crippling. So I think that. But I think that you have to just come in, hey, man, you know, nobody has an ego in here. I don't have one. They don't have one. We're all here to learn. We're all here to get better. And we're all here to motivate and inspire each other to, to be successful. Finally, sort of added to that, are you able to fit everybody in? Is it a struggle to to fit everybody in? And most importantly, do you still sleep? Well, you know, 
I do fit everybody in, and this is the thing about it too. See, Arrow, at one point, Arrow would train at 12 o'clock. But then, and Arrow trained at 12, Frank would train at 2, AJ trained at like 4, 3, 3.34, you know, and then we go for you know, whatever. But Arrow started training at 9, because not, not, and it was like, at 12, it's 105 degrees, time to be <laughs> So what he told to do, said, it's the train at 9 o'clock. I said, okay. But now I have to wake up at 6.30 so I can go running before I go to the gym. It's a big issue, you know. So I was like, man, I don't get much sleep. I woke up at, like, at 3.45 this morning. And, you know, I wake up at 6.30 every, other, every, every day. So it's like, yeah, I'm tired now, but it's good. <laughs> Yeah, full, full disclosure for, for our audience that we're recording this interview at uh, 9.15 Eastern time at night. Is As soon as we uh, finish this interview, is are you like straight to bed? Is that uh, is that your uh, timeline these days? I'm going to take a shower, watch some video, and I'm going to bed. <laughs> I'm going to watch Dillian White and a little Crawford. I'm going to bed. All right. Hey, mate, look, thank you so much for putting a little bit of time aside to talk to us tonight, uh, especially with as much as you've got going on. All the best with everything. It's great to see how successful you're, you are with, with all your training and uh, you've always been good to us. So thank you very much for uh, for appearing on the podcast again. Appreciate that, guys. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank Thanks, thank Derek. You. Good you luck too. with everything. Thank you. Great stuff there with Derek. Interesting that he was kind of contradicting the reporting we've seen that that it was yes. Canelo versus Jamal until suddenly it wasn't. We had heard whispers that it was never necessarily really Jamal, and and I guess that's what Derek was saying that that Jamal was in the mix all along, maybe even more than in the mix. Um, so interesting there. Anyway, what what a good dude. Uh, Derek really yeah. didn't have to carve out time for us, but he did, and we appreciate it. I'm just picturing Tim Zhu listening to that interview, and <laughs> yeah, and all the more so picturing Tim Zhu if he hadn't actually fought twice this year, right? Um, knowing that Jamel had been apparently talking about this for for weeks and weeks, so yeah, <laughs> yeah, you could you could bake up some good conspiracy theories about uh, when Jamel may actually have been ready to fight Tim Zhu or may not have yeah. been and was just stalling because he knew he was in the Canelo sweepstakes. Who knows? But uh, interesting stuff there. Yeah, definitely. All right. Uh, we finish with the top five countdown. Uh, if one good thing can come out of the 4th of July, this horrible holiday catering to simpletons who are entertained by loud booms <laughs> and pretty colors in the sky at the expense of my poor quivering dog who thinks the world is oh. ending. Hopefully that one good thing is that we can ring an entertaining top five list from it. Oh. Uh, true fact here. Little Lotus. Yes, poor Otis. Well, here's the thing, Karen. This is a fact. The the more okay. fireworks you light, the smaller your penis is. Simple, Best. straightforward, inverse relationship there. Well, well, the city of Washington, D.C. must be just... <laughs> well, yes. anyway, let's not go there. <laughs> Everyone can picture what they're picturing now. Uh, we digress. Uh, you tasked me with ranking the all-time top five triumphs for American boxers over British boxers. As I clarified with you midweek, uh, British does refer to all of Britain, not just to England. Uh, so here we go. I feel like I should ask Franchon Cruz Desern to quietly sing the Star Spangled Banner in the background behind <laughs> me this entire segment with with occasional bald eagle squawks uh, mixed in. <laughs> USA, USA. All right, here we go. Here we go. At number five, one of the very biggest events ever between an American fighter and a Brit. 
one you've referenced in the past as an all-timer in terms of atmosphere. Um, it was Las Vegas, December 8th, 2007. Floyd Mayweather knocking out Ricky Hatton in the 10th round to the great disappointment of the thousands of loudly singing, heavily boozing Brits who made the trip. Uh, this one would be higher on the list if not for the fact that Mayweather winning was totally expected. Right. I never gave Hatton a chance in this fight. So so that that diminishes the win slightly in that basically Floyd did what he was supposed to do. But it was a massive event, a star American fighter dispatching British boxing's biggest star at the time, check hooking him into the turning buckle <laughs> pad, no less. Uh, it is number five on my list. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I remember during fight week, uh, I think it was actually on the Saturday, sitting at a table. I just found myself sitting at a table with a lot of the Brit journalists, and, and several of them were like, oh, I hope Ricky can do it. I think he can do it. And I remember thinking, you're insane. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I like Ricky Hatton as a fighter, but I mean, have you not seen Floyd fight? Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, so now I will admit, from my perch where I was at, with, uh, I, I think I was quite generous with my scoring, and I had Hatton winning a few early rounds that actually nobody else did but mm. yeah floyd took that over and, and won it but my god yes that atmosphere that was incredible uh, i should point out that as an editor you should be aware that heavily boozing brit is a redundancy <laughs> sorry um, my bad yeah <laughs> but uh oh my goodness what an atmosphere and, and there was something about as well as i recall correctly the exchange rate was very much in the, the brit's favor at that point mm. and and it was quite cheap for everyone to come over <laughs> even if they didn't have a ticket and there was thousands upon thousands uh, of, of brits swarming the mgm and environs uh, that atmosphere was was really remarkable and they kept singing even after ricky got knocked out as i recall so yeah. uh yeah amazing amazing event and that is also on my i came up with about seven or eight Mm -hmm. um i didn't re i sort of ordered them a bit but this was absolutely on there yes yeah you know i realized as i was saying that it was to the great disappointment of the those brits the the result yeah maybe maybe it wasn't even maybe they didn't by that point as you said they kept singing they were just having a good time obviously they wanted yeah. their guy to win but maybe great disappointment is a little strong maybe maybe some <laughs> of them by that point were enough beers in that they really didn't care <laughs> or know what was going on yeah right. exactly or know who they were <laughs> where they were yeah. right yeah. Um, yeah. at number four we have the fight that inspired me to ask you if irish <laughs> or scottish fighters counted as british and you answered something about northern ireland and as, as a dumb american i kind of zoned out and i just decided i'm pretty sure this guy counts um it was a huge upset on june 23rd 1986 at caesar's palace as stevie cruz from fort worth texas knocked Barry McGuigan down twice in the 15th round of an absolute thriller in the Vegas heat mm. to claim a featherweight title by narrow unanimous decision. That was the Ring Magazine round of the year, the 15th. It was a contender for fight of the year and upset of the year. It was another American getting the better of a visiting Brit in Las Vegas, a heartbreaking loss for the Irish fans. And, and, and that's really as much a part of this countdown as American fans getting to celebrate. It's largely about breaking the hearts of our sworn enemies, the Brits. Uh, so, uh, so this is my number four. But it's very difficult, of course, because, you know, Barry did straddle that line at a time where the whole situation in Northern Ireland was very uh fraught to put it mildly he did kind of straddle that line in the 
he had Irish fans and British fans, each of whom claimed him as their own. And, you know, you might be anti-British, but, you know, the enemy of your enemy is your friends. So <laughs> how are you feeling about the Irishman losing there as well? So it's 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 complicated, Eric. It's complicated. I guess so. And and as such, I will not think about it too much and never quite oh, it's best about any of this and uh, just continue calling everyone right. from all of Europe. They're all Brits to me. I don't know the difference. Right. And technically speaking, Northern Ireland isn't part of Great Britain, it's part of the United Kingdom, but anyway, but anyway, <laughs> let's move on from that. And I yes. do remember that fight, and my goodness, it was grueling, and I'm sure that uh, the Las Vegas heat, because it was a hot day, as mm-hmm. I recall. Yeah, June, he, June in Las Vegas is not the time to be fighting outdoors. <laughs> yeah, especially if you're Irish. And if I recall, <laughs> that was a triple header with Tommy Hearns fought somebody and Roberto Duran fought somebody on that Mm. card and that was the big deal about that you know it was Barry's first super big event in the States I think and he was on that triple header Roberto lost to go to like 103 and 14 or something and I can't remember who he or Tommy Hearns fought but um, yeah it's take the take the very pale skinned Irish guy and have him fight in 100 degrees outside in Las Vegas in June seems in hindsight poor management advice your memory is pretty good because I, I box rec searched while you were talking there uh, yeah uh, Cruz over McGuigan was the main event um, just below that Tommy Hearns KO8 Mark Medal or Medal I'm not sure how that mm. was pronounced before my time yeah. as a boxing follower and uh, Robbie Sims split decision win over Robbie Roberto Duran was it he was huh. like Hagler's half brother, step brother, something like that. Oh, uh, something okay. like that. Also on the undercard, Harold Graham, uh, wow. KO one, Ernie Rabat, and then it gets deeper down into some guys I haven't heard of. But uh, the reason I, I remember all of that is just because McGuigan was huge right. in the UK. Yeah, like I was seventeen at the time or eighteen, and McGuigan was just massive. He was by far. He was not just the biggest boxer over there. He's one of the biggest, like personalities altogether Mm. i think in the country so i remember it even as a sort of you know neophyte boxing fan just the the enormity of the event and it was huge huge it was a big big shock uh when when stevie cruz pulled off that win yeah all right at number three How's about an American ripping the world heavyweight title off the waist of a Brit? Uh, at least a fighter born a Brit, though he moved to New Zealand as a child and lived in Chicago when he died. I am talking about a fight oh. not in the 2000s, not even in the 1900s. Uh, the date good. was June 9th, 1899, Coney Island, New York, where James J. Jeffries wrested the heavyweight title from Bob Fitzsimmons via 11th round knockout. Um, and according to the internet, which is never wrong, uh, Fitzsimmons was a big favorite. Uh, this was a surprise result at the time. Uh, so that always helps. You know, everything on my list other than Mayweather Hatton is an American underdog toppling a British favorite. Uh, had I made this list 100 years ago, this would be number one, uh, I would assume. Uh, and it does still hold up 124 years after the fact as the third greatest win ever by an American fighter over a British fighter. For the record... I was not ringside for this one, nor were you, Kieran. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised, though, if Jerry Eisenberg was. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Uh, I'm embarrassed to say I didn't even think about this one. Um, yes, excellent. Very good choice. Uh, yeah, I believe that those odds that you were talking about were in the Dueling of the Fans Gazette and um, and uh, uh, Record newspaper. That's what they <laughs> called it. Then. Sure, yes, right. Yes, Yes. again, which has subsequently become Fanduels, but you know, at the time, 
we are uh, every bit as uh, accurate factually as the rest of the internet. One hundred percent. Yes, indeed. One hundred and twenty-seven percent. Right. You know, you can't really have more than one hundred percent accurate. Yes, on the internet. Okay. Um, we'll go a bit more modern for the top two. Okay. At number two, another heavyweight title fight upset in New York. This one at Madison Square Garden, not Coney Island. It is Andy Ruiz of Imperial <laughs> California, shocking previously unbeaten Anthony Joshua on June 1st, 2019, eight days shy of 120 years after Jeffries Fitzsimmons. <laughs> uh, our listeners should be familiar with this one. Ruiz, massive underdog, more than 10 to 1 at most sports books, gets dropped in the third. It's going according to script, but then he hurts AJ and drops him twice in the round and then scores two more knockdowns and a KO in round seven. This is probably remembered more as a triumph for a non-classic boxing physique over a classic boxing yeah. physique, or more bluntly, for a fat guy over a chiseled Adonis. That's what it's remembered for far more than American beats Brit. But it was undefeated British superstar Joshua's U.S. debut gone very wrong, and it is one of the most shocking losses a British fighter has ever suffered at the hands of an American boxer. Yes, I had this sort of second on my on my list. Uh, absolutely. Um, not really much else to say, as everybody else you know remembers it. Uh, I'm just going to guess that your top three are all heavyweight title fights. They maybe? are, Possibly. yes. Yep, okay. <laughs> I think you know what's at number one. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a lot like my number two. Massive, massive upset for the heavyweight title. And mostly I'm making this number one because the British fighter in this case is more highly regarded, so his losing remains a bigger deal. And because yep. the ending was was more memorable and emphatic as it was a one-punch KO, uh, this fight was not in America or in Britain. It was in Carnival City, South Africa. I'm, of course, talking about April 22nd, 2001, Hasim Rahman, KO5, Lennox Lewis. If I'm speaking as some sort of rah-rah America, boo England guy, um, look, Lennox was the one who had ended the joke about British horizontal heavyweights. Mm -hmm. He was... The British heavyweight, uh, you know, okay, Jamaican, British, Canadian heavyweight, but whatever. <laughs> right. He was the British heavyweight who'd conquered America's best and become the man, the first to do that since Bob Fitzsimmons, really. And then with one right hand, Rachman seemed to undo all of that and reignite the horizontal heavyweight notion. Mm. As it turned out, it didn't last. Lennox was just way better than Rock, and even the score in the rematch fought two more times and retired as an all-time great. But that kind of makes... Rachman's win that yeah. much more memorable and miraculous, uh, and I would say the greatest win any American boxer has ever scored over a Brit. You know, it was funny that the, the, you mentioning the date there um, reminds me of a little Jim Lampley story when mm -hmm. um, Jim was being inducted into the Hall of Fame. Um, he was getting ready to go on the parade in right. the convertible through Canastota, and he was just sitting there in the car, and uh, Hasim comes up to him. Hasim was there. And he just comes up to him and he had, he had a piece of paper or something. He just like deliberately taps him on the blind side on his shoulder and goes, shoves this piece of paper in front of him and goes, sign this, sign this now. And Jim turns around and in very typical Jim Lampley fashion, turns to his wife and goes, this is Hasim Rockman on uh, April 22nd, 2001 in Carnival <laughs> City, South Africa. He produced, uh, which is such a Jim Lampley thing. I think yes. he could probably throw any fight at him. Uh, uh, that he'd covered, and he'd yeah. know exactly when it was. Yeah, I mean, it was just was. amazing that that was how he responded. April 22nd, 2001. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. Yes, classic <laughs> Lampley. His, yeah, his recall of dates is freakish. 
yeah yeah indeed but yeah absolutely uh this has to be number one i think um and uh like you said actually the way in which lennox avenged it and how he finished his career just made it all the all the more of an upset really yeah so for for honorable mentions i had three kind of close runners up and since you said you had i think you said you had like seven you considered and and you didn't yeah, have got... um fitzsimmons and uh and jeffries i have we three may... left over yeah yeah so we may have the same ones here uh don't need to go into any depth on them but they're uh sugar ray robinson randy turpin too when yep. robinson avenged his defeat uh yep. I put Tyson Bruno two when a post prison Tyson oh, won easily to okay. reclaim a heavy yep. belt, and then I have Oliver McCall, Lennox Lewis, a poor man's Rockman Lewis. So right. So is that there's one I didn't have that you had? Uh, I put um, Ali Cooper one because okay. you know because. Ali was uh, a little bit on Queer Street there until he came back out and, and stopped him. And be what the repercussions might have been had that round been a little bit longer or Cooper had landed that punch a little bit earlier. Um, I also put Marlon Starling, Lloyd Hunnigan. Wasn't the hugest of fights, but it was right. a pretty big tussle for the top of the welterweight division at that time. Um, and, you know, and Hunnigan was, was kind of bashing everybody out of the way and Starling just just completely beat him up um and that was the only other one i put in there i think that's okay. it yep that's it all right i i did actually jot down a bunch of others that i i never really ended up considering them for the top five but but i thought they're maybe just worthy of mentioning uh because i read bill detloff's book and it's fresh in my mind matthew saad muhammad john conte too oh, of course yes. um pete herman over jimmy wilde another one that i'm sure you remember well wow. um andre ward over carl frotch to win the super six worth a mm. mention um just, absolutely worth a mention just a few weeks ago teofimo lopez over josh taylor uh <laughs> yeah. in what is definitely the final fight of lopez's career by the way um, definitely unquestionably yep uh leo santa cruz avenging his loss to carl frampton very good um a young errol spence scoring a then career best win over kel brook um and 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 two fights that aren't really even top 20 or maybe even top 50 but but that i have a connection to uh our friend caleb truax upsetting james degale uh, yes very good one and a fight that i was at live deep on an undercard of some big pay-per-view oliver mccall again knocking Henry Akinwande out cold, oh, a victory yeah. for all of boxing because it ended yes. Akinwande <laughs> as even a fringe contender. Yeah, I just thought of another one. Again, not a top five one, but a good one. Uh, our buddy Timmy Bradley over Junior Witter. That oh, was yeah. a pretty yep. good win for him yeah, as you were talking about that. For sure. Yeah, that, that was one that pops to mind. But yeah. USA! Yeah. USA! <laughs> Well, and I can half say that I I do have a U.S. passport, so yes, yeah. jolly good USA. That's my compromise. You're probably as American as I am at this point. I've spent longer in the United States than I have I ever did in the U.K. Same. I'm. <laughs> I left the U.K. in 1989. Wow, we yeah. definitely have listeners who have been alive less long than you have been in America here. Unquestionably. Now, I did spend five years in Amsterdam. I didn't come here until 1994, but the, the point remains the same. Yes, there, we definitely have listeners born after 1994 as well. Yep, they are probably the same people who say that I've aged like milk. <laughs> and they're right. And they're right. Yes, indeed. All right, that will do it for this week's Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Uh, join us next week when we will recap that Showtime card from Las Vegas featuring Frank Martin. And be sure to check out All Access, Crawford versus Spence, episode one of which is now available on Showtime streaming and digital platforms and is very good, by the way, well worth watching. 
Uh, thank you for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be